integrated science of the absolute cosmology epilogue. From what we have said in the prologue, it must be sufficiently clear that there are at present drastically different cosmological theories, difficult to fit in or refer to any normative notion. Without such a normative notion, however, they fail to have a fully scientific status. Truth cannot be multiple. If there are two rival theories, this is due to the defects of tautology or contradiction. Tautology is an evil because it implies a petitio principi, or begging the question. And when we fall into the opposite error of contradiction, we at once recognize two rival truths at one and the same time, which on the very face of it is unthinkable. For a science of the absolute, the necessity of avoiding both tautology and contradiction by transcending paradox is imperative. Although the laws of thought may be formulated or applied less strictly for utilitarian or relativistic branches of information or opinion. The reader who has now examined the series of ten verses of the first chapter of the Darshanamala will see and recognize in them one and the same normative reference. This is so true that one who reads them can even suspect that Narayana Guru is unnecessarily repeating himself in every verse. What he is actually doing in each of these verses is juxtaposing two reciprocal aspects of cosmology. One pertains to the side of the effect and the other to the side of the cause. We also see him always choosing a compatible pair of dialectical counterparts. If God is the cause, then the visible world is the effect of that cause, both being treated as mathematical ensembles. Of these ensembles, one is finite or proper, and the other is infinite or improper, like the two sets of elements understood in the mathematics of Cantor or Hilbert. When we think of these two counterparts in the most abstract of terms, as we have already done, using the analogy of the master sportsman on a football field, it is then possible to think of more than one legitimate starting point for a fully normalized cosmological discussion. Within the vertical range of the possible structural patterns referring to the purely logical parameter, each of the ten verses could be recognized as having three distinct stable structural variations, recognizable by the reference in each to a definite and familiarly acceptable source or cause, such as God's will, an artist's art, or a seed of sprout. The series of verses in their implied epistemological movement from the negative to the positive poles can be seen to have three fixed positions. The last verse marks the negative limiting instance, the word agre occurring in the middle verse and the first cannot be justified except when we concede to Narayan Guru the intention of treating each verse as an independent jewel in the garland with an absolute self-sufficiency of its own. The relation between each verse is similar to the monad of Leibniz and his monas monadum. Thus there are three limiting verses in the series of ten. The first, which paradoxically begins with an apparently untenable statement, seems to show how something was created out of nothing. This is a glaring contradiction in terms. We have to imagine this as referring to a structural limiting case, wherein 
contradiction horizontally understood can exist side by side with a logic or rather a dialectic which takes a vertical view of reality. In this latter view of reality, there is no exclusion of the middle term as we have explained in the preliminary remarks. Shankara treating of cause and effect in his commentary on the Brahma Sutras 2.117 remarks, for by the non-existence of the effect previous to its production is not meant absolute non-existence, but only a different quality of state namely the state of name and form being unevolved, which state is different from the state of name and form being evolved. With reference to the latter state, the effect is called, previous to its production, non-existent, although then also it existed identical with its cause. It follows from all this that the designation of non-existence applied to the effect before its production has reference to a different state of being merely. And as those things, with that, those things which are distinguished by name and form are in ordinary language called existent, the term non-existent is figuratively applied to them to denote the state in which they were previously to their differentiation. To the simple question, where was God standing when he began to create the world? We have to answer that both the world and the God who created it had an equally thin or pure abstracted or generalized status. He resembled mind rather than gross matter. Mind and matter when understood in the most ultimate of nominalistic or conceptual terms closely resemble complete nothingness. It is true that no philosophy significant to human beings can begin with complete nothingness as the starting point. Philosophy must be worthwhile to man and even the most abstract knowledge must necessarily have at least a value significance. It must be worthwhile to communicate to fellow humans. Cosmological discussions must therefore have at least a minimum axiological starting point. God and goodness are the same axiologically. This is also found in Plato's philosophy. The two terms God and creation cancel out into an absolute value and thus attain to meaningfulness here. Even in the language of thermodynamics, the omega point reached by an egentropic order is a positive limit. This limit is understood in the context of universe constantly tending to a chaotic state of zero entropy. This is found in both the theory of Carnot as well as that of anti-Carnot, implied in Boltzmann's famous equation. The omega point is the positive limit of the level of disorder. If the reversibility of the arrow of time is added to this picture, emerging out of modern scientific theorization, it would not be illegitimate for us to think of God as the teleological first or final cause of the universe. The term God could have its equivalence in other contexts than theology. The most useful word, God, need not be rejected except for good reasons, as its prevailing usage all over the world and in all kinds of cultures recommends it for adoption all the more. An impartial scientist should have no prejudice for or against words in full use especially when fully composable and compatible with the science of the Absolute. It must be for these reasons that Narayana Guru uses this time-honored word, 
having different grades of factual or logical truth in the verses accommodating within its range all representative equivalents or alternative notions. Thus one may visualize God as an interesting mathematical entity, but not without his mysterious mystical value natural to the mind of man. Scientific myth-making can even be permitted and God can be imagined as a great fisherman standing in the Milky Way with a structural net in his hand and his body consisting of concentrated galaxies trying to run away peripherally to the outer limits of the perceptible universe. He need not necessarily be only anthropomorphically thought of if such a view is repugnant to those who can dispense with all geometrical forms whatsoever. Whether God is an algebraic type of mathematician or a geometrical one, he has a truth value that cannot be overlooked even by the most skeptical of scientists. Mind and matter meet in him neutrally as even a pragmatist would approve.